Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast, our 100th episode. I'm CEO Dan Mariashi. My guest today is a partner in the Washington, D.C. law firm Aaron Fox Schiff, who also serves as general counsel for B'nai B'rith. His name, Gerard Laval, and his new book, Lobbying for Equality, Jacques Godard and the Struggle for Jewish Equality During the French Revolution, follows the life of a young Catholic lawyer named Jacques Godard, who advocated for Jewish equality in France more than two centuries ago, and why that struggle still matters today. But first, one brief reminder, check out our series Conversations with B'nai B'rith and all of our interviews on Facebook and YouTube. You'll find discussions with diplomats, historians, Holocaust survivors, Middle East experts, even the first Jewish-American male astronaut in space. And get our latest content by subscribing to the B'nai B'rith YouTube channel and liking us on Facebook at B'nai B'rith International. Well, the French Revolution brought the promise of equality to many oppressed groups living in France. French Jews, subject to brutal treatment for centuries, sought to benefit from new freedoms promised by the revolution. So they enlisted the help of young Catholic attorney Jacques Godard, who ultimately persuaded the Paris Municipal Assembly to legislate equal rights for Jews. In his new book, Lobbying for Equality, Jacques Godard and the Struggle for Jewish Equality During the French Revolution, author and international law expert Gerard Laval brings to life the story of a young man who fought for equality for the French Jewish community more than 200 years ago. Gerard joins me now to talk about Godard's life and impact on the Jews of France, how Godard brought about meaningful change at a turbulent moment in history, the history of Jews in France, and much more. Gerard Laval has previously written on a wide range of historical subjects, including Jewish art and genealogy, he is co-leader of Aaron Fox Schiff's International Group in Washington, D.C., and serves as the pro bono general counsel to the United States Holocaust Memorial Council, which oversees the Holocaust Museum, also here in Washington, D.C. Gerard, great to have you with us for our 100th episode. And thank you very much for that kind introduction. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Well, before we speak about your very important book, I want to talk about your research and your writing process. This was not a matter of going over to the Library of Congress or going to the local library and, and uh, getting some assistance and pulling a few books off the shelf. Based on many footnotes throughout the book, it seems that uh, you traveled to numerous archives and read primary source documents, some of which, are particularly those from France's Jewish community, have never been studied before. Tell us about that process. Well, the research was a little bit like a scavenger hunt. Um, initially, I just had an interest in Godel because I ran across his name in a book that was published many years ago by a rabbi named David Feuerwerker, for whom my own grandfather did research. And I bought the book one day and I noticed the name of this young man and I sort of intrigued. And I have a cousin who's a professor of law at the Columbia University who sent me a series of documents about the French Revolution, knowing of my interest. And it included a number of writings by Godel. So that began the process. And at first, I thought I might write an article. But it grew into a, a reasonably large book. And um, I was given access to archives, libraries across France, also in Israel, because there are documents that are located in Jerusalem. 
And uh, what, what's really astounding in our era is the ease with which one can access original documents over the internet. The French National Library has 4 million documents on its website, and they're easy to access. But also, because of the nature of my law practice, which takes me to France with some frequency, I was able to go and spend time in a variety of, of archives and libraries. And France, and Paris in particular, uh, is filled with remarkable uh, uh, libraries, archives, and with people more than willing to help researchers. And so I was given access to many things. Also, I was actually able to buy some documents. Interestingly enough, there is a market in old documents from the revolutionary era, and I was able to buy some documents uh, that augmented uh, the uh, documentation that I had. So it, it, was, it, it was a process that by itself was very exciting and rewarding. Well, you bring a couple of advantages to this, uh, this process. Your, your family uh, is from France, from that French uh, Jewish community, and you're an attorney. So you're looking at legal documents in French going back a couple of hundred years. Uh, how has your legal background, how did it help you in the research process? Well, it, 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 first of all, obviously speaking and reading French, and I grew up with that in my family, was of course immensely helpful because most of these documents, most of the critical documents are not translated. They exist in the old original French. And the fact that I was writing about a young lawyer meant that there were similarities. Legal training, uh, whether it's today or 200 years ago, has some, certain similarities and there are certain thought processes that are common. And so I think I was better able to get into Jacques Godal's mind because of my own personal legal background. And it helped to understand what he was going through. Though I must concede that I have high regard for a young man who in a very short period of time accomplished so much, whereas many of us have lengthy careers and we can't possibly boast of having accomplished similar things. So it, yes, the, the fact that I'm a lawyer made it um, much easier uh, to understand what was going on and how it was being carried out. I'd like you to tell the story of, of Jacques Godard and his role in procuring the rights of citizenship for the Jews of France, which dovetailed uh, with the early history of the French Revolution, as you do in your book. But before we get to that, paint a picture for us of what the Jewish community was like in France at the end of the 18th century. Well, that, that, it's a very important part of, of the analysis in the book. The the story is not a particularly attractive one. Uh, as we approach the end of the 18th century, things begin to improve. But the truth is that for many, many generations, Jews were oppressed. They were, in fact, even denied actual legal existence uh, from 1394 until 1791. Jews did not have an official right to be in France. In 1394, Jews were expelled from everything that was France. And they, uh, that there was no revocation of that edict. However, in 1648, the Treaty of Westphalia, which ended the Thirty Years' War, brought into France a very large group of rather poverty-stricken, village-living Jews in eastern France, the Ashkenazim, the, the German-speaking Jews of eastern France. And they had a very difficult time. They were disliked intensely by their neighbors in part because they were very different, in part because they were engaged in money lending, something which could not be done. There were no banks in those days. And Jews did engage in some money lending, 
which involved high interest rates because there was tremendous risk. Uh, but I think that the fundamental thing is Jews were disliked because they were different. They had different religion, different way of life. They dressed differently. And so uh, as the 18th century began, they were a, a pariah nation. They were not even viewed. They were not citizens. They were not part of the French nation, if you will. But the Enlightenment began to draw attention to the need to give certain rights to Jews. And as the century progressed, there was a greater and greater interest. And then in 1787, in a typically French way, there was an essay contest in the city of Metz. The city of Metz in northeastern France had the largest concentration of Jews at the time. And there was a, an essay contest on the question of how to make Jews happier and better uh, participants in society. And that triggered a lot of interest among the intellectual elites, which began to lead towards the revolution. It was part of the revolutionary process. But to summarize it, Jews were not very well treated uh, in France. Uh, now, let me draw one important distinction. There were two groups of Jews in France. There were the so-called Portuguese Jews living in southwestern France, the Bordeaux region and, and, and further south. And they were relatively affluent and well-established in their communities. They were the descendants of Spanish and Portuguese Jews who had converted to Catholicism, had left Spain, settled in France, and slowly began to return to their Jewish origins and were given patent letters that gave them the right to live in France, although albeit as new Christians, but to live in relative freedom, as distinguished from the Ashkenazi Jews, the Eastern European Jews, who did not have that, uh, that privilege, those privileges, and had to develop them. And that's where Jacques Godel played an important role. Tell us a bit about his background. Where did he come from in France? Uh, Jacques Godel came from a, a small town called Semur en Auxois. Beautiful little town created probably uh, 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 a thousand years ago. In fact, it's even featured in some American films, uh, The Happy Road, where Gene Kelly features the town of Samuel. It was a very closed off society. In fact, Jews were not allowed to live in Samuel. Uh, uh, and the intellectual ferment in that area happened in Dijon, a city that uh, is about uh, 40, 50 miles to the south of Samuel. And uh, Jacques Godard's family had been prominent public citizens, public servants for generations. And he was relatively well-connected with intellectuals of the region, notably the great scientist Buffon, not well-known to Americans, but extremely well-known to French people. And his family's prominence gave him an opening so that he could meet, when he became a lawyer, he could meet many, many prominent people, the elites of his time, which other young people might not have been able to do. Where did the impulse come from for his interest in the rights of the Jewish community. Uh, was he approached or did he approach them? Because he's, he's a young man, he's in Paris, he's a lawyer, there's a lot of political ferment going on. How did, how did that happen? Where did the, uh, the connection uh, occur? It's an excellent question. It's, it's not absolutely clear, but it seems as though the Jewish community turned to him. He was living um, in a neighborhood immediately adjacent to where the largest concentration of Parisian Jews were living at the time, as they began to decide to struggle for their rights. And so I think they would have turned to him as a young lawyer, uh, an up and coming young lawyer who would be willing to help them. But there's an interesting link, 
a number of years before, several years before, he had worked with a prominent lawyer who became the president of the Paris Bar involving a matter in Metz, in the city of Metz, which had a large Jewish population, where two Jews had accused seven Germans of ransacking their homes. The Germans had been uh, convicted, a couple of them executed, and then there was a reversal. Other people confessed to the crime, and there was a great backlash. And the lawyer with whom, the senior lawyer with whom Godal worked, uh, uh, launched an attack on the Jews, saying that they had lied, they, uh, that the, as witnesses they'd been unreliable. Godal joined the lawsuit, but did not focus at all on the, on the Jewish side, focused on the fact that the Germans had been tortured, that there was a, a, a very bad process without the rights for defendants to be presumed innocent. And I think that would have attracted the attention of the Jewish community because here's a young man who involved in a matter where anti-Semitism was right at the top, chose a different way, chose to defend people on the basis of legal processes and not on prejudice. And, and I think that would have attracted the attention notably of the wealthiest Jew of the time who himself had a mansion near Metz and would have heard about this uh, and presumably would have led the Jewish community to hire uh, the young Goodell, because the Jews themselves, most of them could not speak fluent French, could not write particularly well in French, and obviously didn't know the Byzantine uh, uh, methods of the French legal system. So that appears to be where the link was created. And Goodell seemed to be more than willing to be retained by the Jewish community. And he really went into it uh, uh, fully learning a great deal about Jewish customs, about the Jewish religion. Uh, about Jewish history uh, and, and became fully engaged as any good lawyer should. He became a zealous uh, representative of that community. Well, we'll get back to him in a second, but if you would, run us through some of the, the key events that occurred beginning in the fall of 1789 regarding attempts to change uh, the status of Ashkenazi Jews. You, you've told us how he became involved. And what other work did he do to signal to French Jews? that he was the right person uh, to fight for their equality. He, he got into it, uh, but was he, was he signaling, and this is a young man, he's in his 20s, clearly brilliant. Uh, what, what was it his, his legal expertise? Uh, was it his being well-connected in the legal community? I mean, what, what were the signals that went out to the Jewish community that said, here's our guy, he's the one who can really take our, our case and fly our banner, uh, you know, all the way up. Well, it, it, he was a very young man. I mean, we're, we're talking about a young man who's in his mid-20s. And he had accomplished a number of things that would have attracted a great deal of attention. One of the things, perhaps the most notable, was his defense of a young man from Martinique, a young slave who had been brought to France. And Godel defended him in his efforts to obtain his freedom. Under the uh, Byzantine laws of France, this young man was probably entitled to his freedom. Goodell undertook to defend him and, and did so with vigor. Uh, he failed. He lost the case. The case was lost, but he won in public, in, in, in the eyes of the public, because that case helped create a, a group called Les Amis des Noirs, the Friends of the Blacks, which ultimately argued strongly for the emancipation 
uh, of slaves in France, which incidentally was achieved in 1791 initially, in 1794 was reinforced, reversed by Napoleon, but finalized in 1848. And Goodell played a very important role. That would have attracted the attention, certainly of, of not just the Jewish community, the community at large. He also had a, a tendency to defend the unfortunate. Uh, he defended a, a Protestant man whose marriage was being denied and therefore the succession from his wife, the estate of his wife was being denied. And he took up that defense and he mentioned the Jewish issue in a relatively brilliant uh, uh, pleading in the Protestant matter. He, he defended uh, people who probably almost no one else wanted to defend, people accused of murder falsely, as it turns out. So I think he, he attracted the attention of the Jewish community because he was helping the downtrodden, the unfortunate, uh, those uh, not uh, uh, given all the benefits of French society, even at, at that point. Second part of your question, if, I, if you want me to continue with what happened in 1789 in the fall, it's really remarkable. First of all, in the summer of 1789, of course, the revolution begins. The Bastille is, is taken over by the Paris mob. And a whole series of events occur which undermine the absolute monarchy of the Bourbon family. And everything is put into question. And the Jewish community sort of awakens and says, well, wait a minute. If others are going to get new rights, why shouldn't we? And they begin a process and very quickly in the summer, make a presentation to the uh, what's called the French National Assembly or the Constituent Assembly, that is the Estates General converted into a kind of legislature. And they, they make an appearance, doesn't get them anywhere. And they realize quickly, they need an advocate. And they get an advocate in, the, in Jacques Godard. And there are debates, which uh, in, the, in December of 1789, there's a debate that almost grants Jews equality, but fails. And it is that there is an adjournment until January. And that's when both the Portuguese Jews of southwestern France, the Ashkenazi Jews of eastern France, prepare their documents to plead to the National Assembly for their rights. In, Jan in late January 1790, the Bordeaux Jews, the Portuguese Jews, are recognized as full citizens of France but not the Alsatian, Ashkenazi, Eastern, Euro, Eastern French Jews. And that's when they have to begin their campaign of lobbying. And it becomes a very rigorous exercise in which Jacques Godard is the pivotal actor. Well, sadly, um, he died before he turned 30. What can you tell us about his other achievements and his status as, as a French leader prior to his illness? You've talked about all of the good causes uh, especially the cause of Jewish emancipation. He, he as a young man, um, was he respected, looked up to uh, by those who were in the in the political uh, elite and the and the legal community? Very much so. He um, he was an ambitious young man. He was a big networker, as we would say today. Um, and he early on in his career met uh, and bef and was befriended by the leading legal lights of his time, but also leading intellectual lights. I, I speculate that he had contacts with Thomas Jefferson, for example, because the person whose secretary and disciple he was uh, communicated extensively with, with Jefferson. He, uh, he, he was extremely well-connected. So the, the Jewish aspect of his, of his career is one piece, but he 
also became a political actor. Early on, he was elected by his local assembly as president of that assembly. He then was elected to the Paris Municipal Assembly, much larger body. Uh, and in that context, appeared a number of times before the French National Assembly. So he became a, an active player. He became president, by far the youngest, president of the Paris Municipal Assembly in April 1790 and played a, an important role until he was defeated in a bid for re-election and was sort of out to pasture. Well, what did he do during that time? He wrote the most comprehensive history of the Paris Municipal Assembly, a more than 200 page book that describes the critical events of the fall and winter and spring of 17, 1789, 1790, which remains a reference book for historians about that critical part of the, of the French Revolution. In the fall of 1790, he was named by Louis XVI, King of France, to head a delegation to try to pacify a region of France in, south, in the southwest of France, in central France, where there was an anti-revolutionary movement. And he went down there and pacified them uh, and wrote a lengthy, lengthy report, one of the longest documents he written, which give us interesting insights into what was going on in France, not in Paris, but in the countryside. And, and then after that, when he came back, he, um, he continued to serve as a kind of lawyer, though the legal profession was interestingly enough abolished, and then was a candidate for the new legislative assembly that, that was going to be created under the constitution of 1791, and he was elected. He was elected as the youngest member of this new legislative assembly that convened on October 1, 1791. Unfortunately, he contracted typhoid fever and died on November 4, 1791 at the age of 29. He was therefore both the youngest member of that assembly and the first to die. Um, and, and if I may, just to note that his great accomplishment, the emancipation, if you will, the grant of civil rights to the Jewish community occurred on September 27, 1791. He was dead within less than two months following that occurrence. He did not even live long enough to see Louis XVI sign into law the legislation that he had been so important and, and instrumental in getting ratified. How did the, the terror uh, during the later stages of the French Revolution affect the newly won Jewish emancipation? Well, everybody thinks of the terror. You think of the French Revolution, you think of the terror. Uh, the terror is a really horrible episode, uh, <clears throat> which in many ways, it, it was, if you will, a hijacking of the early phase of the French Revolution by radicals. And um, it undermined many of the gains of the early phase. Jews were not well treated during the terror, but not because they were Jews, but because they represented religion. And religion was, especially the Catholic religion, was uh, viewed in a very bad light. And so Jews were forced to shut their synagogues. Jewish objects were, uh, had to be turned over to the government. Remember, France was under siege from the wars by the other uh, dynasties. The, the terror, which epitomizes the French Revolution, is in some ways the antithesis of what the French Revolution accomplished. What Jacques Godard and others accomplished in the first two years of the French Revolution was severely undermined by the violence uh, of the subsequent two, three years. 
But in France, those accomplishments of those first couple of years remain fundamental to the French mentality. So that even if there was a step back, everyone knows in France that in 1791, the Jewish community, if you will, that a tremendous accomplishment occurred. And for all the drama of the terror, the real accomplishments of the French Revolution are those sorts of things the, the, given to Protestants, to Jews, to, to uh, slaves, et cetera. Those were the great accomplishments, not the, the, the beheading of, of hundreds, if not thousands of people. That's, I, you'll forgive me for using the term, it's collateral damage in a way. And it's unfortunate that history highlights things like that when perhaps we should be more highlighting things like the accomplishments of Jacques Godard. I'd like to uh, tie uh, Godard's story and the struggle for Jewish equality in France to today's conundrum for French Jewry, which is the alarming spike in anti-Semitism across France and Europe uh, and the globe, uh, for that matter. What parallels or similarities do you see between the 1790s in France and modern-day France when it comes to Jewish security, acceptance, and if there is still room for a robust Jewish community in the country? Well, uh, uh, French Jewish history is a roller coaster ride. Obviously, 1791 and the accomplishments I cite in the book are a real high point. It's the first in Western societies grant of equality to Jews. But there are, but it became a roller coaster in the 19th century. We all know about the Dreyfus affair which unleashed terrible political and societal anti-Semitism. We obviously all know about what happened in the 1940s during the German occupation, where French collaborators turned over thousands of Jews who were, who were slaughtered. Uh, we're aware of growing anti-Semitism today, but I think fundamentally, the principles of France, the, uh, the principles of the French Revolution, I think remain a guiding light. And I'm, I'm actually cautiously optimistic uh, uh, look, I, I grew up in Paris. I, I have a tremendous love of France and French culture. And I'm going to declare myself cautiously optimistic that the current wave of anti-Semitism, primarily coming, unfortunately, from the radical Muslim community, can be overcome if France will confront those issues. Now, whether France has the ability to confront it or not, I don't know. I think of how the book ends. There, I, I cite the remark that was made in, by Joe and Lai in response to Henry Kissinger's request to, for, for Joe and Lai's comment on what do you think of the French Revolution? And Joe and Lai responds, it's too early to tell. In some ways, arguably, it may be still too early to tell whether the great accomplishments of that early phase of the French Revolution are permanent or whether they will be buffeted in such a way that Jews will feel alienated and obliged to leave France. I certainly hope that's not the case. French Jewish history is an integral part of French history, and I hope it will continue that way. Well, a final question. Um, we have in Jacques Godard a, a very interesting character. Um, he basically was a, a one-man uh, human rights NGO um, office. Uh, taking up not only the cause of the Jewish community, but others, as you, as you pointed out. What are a few things that you hope that readers and, and historians who are going to be among your readers might take away from the book? Well, obviously, I, I hope that people get a much better understanding of a critical era in the history of the West. 
Uh, <clears throat> there is no question. The French Revolution was a pivotal event, and I've tried to make it understandable to people who may not know much about it. And I've tried to also put at the heart of it what uh, happened to the Jewish community, because we're, we're often told how we Jews are the canaries in the coal mine. Well, in some ways, that's true. And, and the way in which the elites of the French Revolution treated the Jews is an important sign uh, of how Western society should uh, relate to its Jewish community. So I hope people learn a great deal about that era, learn about how if you struggle in a constructive, intelligent way, you can accomplish your objectives, that it takes persistence, it takes intelligence, uh, uh, it takes a kind of intellectual zealotry, which I think Godal displayed. And, and I hope people learn from this that it isn't through violence, it isn't through overthrow, et cetera, but frequently through the use of the mechanisms that are in front of us and doing so intelligently, resourcefully, that we can accomplish our goals as we Jews have done in France and in many other societies. And, and, and I hope that this is viewed as an example of how and I'll, I'm going to be a little self-serving here, how lawyers can help in the process of using the law, of using the tools of the law to achieve remarkable and remarkably important objectives. Well, you know, we were always raised as Jews uh, to look back at history and to be grateful to those individuals, and there were not many, uh, through the course of history, um, <clears throat> who stood up at, at a particular moment in time uh, for for us, and uh, Godard seems to be the the, the next candidate uh, in this pantheon uh, because of uh, his being way ahead of his time uh, in terms of recognizing the the need for equality for a community, which, as you said, was it did numbered uh, just uh, some thousands of people. This was not a a, a major uh, electoral block as we were looking. Uh, at this today, so I think that that what you've done uh, is to is to move him into this uh, long-awaited. It's taken some time, but to to move him uh, into uh, this position of, of being one of those people uh, for whom we are grateful. And Gerard, I have to say, it is an engaging read uh, and uh, really uh, something that I think will be uh, a book that will have a great uh, make a great contribution uh, to our understanding of French Jewry and of the imperative of fighting for equality for us, of course, and for, for all. And th thank you very much for saying that. I, really, I very much appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to speak about, about the book. And I, I do hope that Godal will be a much better known figure because he merits it. He's a great role model, a great example. Well, the book is Lobbying for Equality, Jacques Godard and the Struggle for Jewish Equality During the French Revolution by Gerard Laval, and it's available wherever you purchase books. Gerard, again, we really appreciate your being here, sharing Godard's story, his inspiring story with us. Best of luck with the book. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. Well, if you're looking for more of our programming, visit our website, thenaborth.org, to listen to all of our conversations, our podcasts, and our live interviews. Thanks to attorney and scholar Gerard Laval for joining me, and as always, Thank you for listening in. Now, if you like what you hear and you're in a podcast app already, hit the subscribe button to follow us. You can also listen to the show via the B'nai B'rith website. 
For my guest, Gerard Laval, and for B'nai B'rith, I'm your host, Dan Mariashin. Talk to you again soon.